Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to our Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by the Bleakley Financial Group's CIO, Peter Bookvar. He is a CNBC contributor. He is the author of the book report. That's B-O-O-C-K report. It's my first read every morning here. So check that out. You guys all know Peter. He's been on the pod on many occasions. Peter's going to have an interview coming up right after our discussion on markets. We're going to talk about his view on commodities, on precious metals, on what's going on with inflation. And of course, earnings season and what to expect from the market reaction to earnings that we get over the next few weeks. But his interview with Rudy Frank, the CEO of Seabridge Gold. Seabridge Gold is the owner of copper, silver, and gold mines across North America. So Peter has a great one-on-one with Rudy to kind of get his sense for what they're seeing as a miner in the space and how it links up with Peter's views on the shiny metal there. Peter, welcome back to On the Tape. Dan, thanks. Appreciate having me on and with the interview with Rudy Frank. You've had a lot of really great interviews that we've been very fortunate to share with our listeners of On the Tape over the last few months with CEOs in areas that you think are important to the economy or important to your investment thesis. Talk to me a little bit about how this conversation with Rudy came up and why you thought it was important to have it. On the gold side, obviously, there is a lot of focus on monetary policy, not just with the Fed, but globally and how they try to sort of land the plane of a period of extraordinary easing policy and now tighter policy without causing any financial slash economic accidents. Dollar action is part of that. Through January last year through October, the dollar index rallied 17% and was one of the more important macro stories. But since then, we've seen some slippage and coincident with that, a rise in gold and also silver too. But the other interesting thing about this is silver and copper are very important industrial metals that are key to the future of this whole transition to renewables and electrification and electric vehicles and so on. For example, the average EV needs five to six more copper uh, in terms of amount relative to internal combustion engines. So you need a lot of this in order to realize a lot of these priorities and goals that the, the world has. They're undeveloped mines, but they're growing closer to actual development has a lot of gold, silver, and if you do them, a lot of copper. And these are essentially the key ingredients for both the monetary side, but also the industrial side. There's a lot more that we need in terms of demand relative to supply that's uh, that's forecasted right now. You and I have talked for years. I've heard you talk on CNBC, uh, obviously on the book report. You've had a core bullish thesis on precious metals, but now all of a sudden it seems like when you talk about the growth that we're seeing in the electrification of industries like the auto industry, the demand for some of these other industrial commodities helps kind of broaden out 
a bullish thesis. Is that fair to say? Because if you're thinking about precious metals, which you have for a very long time, and what it means as it relates to monetary policy and, and the kind of movement of our dollar in particular. But now when you think about basically in the industrial space, there's emerging bullish cases for that. So talk to me a little bit about how you think about it from an allocation standpoint. You know, it used to be that everybody should have a little gold or silver in their portfolio as a bit of inflation hedge, right? And on a relative basis, gold acted very well to a lot of other risk assets last year. Now, I mean, the case can be broadened out, I guess, to the whole sector. I think so. And and I think silver is the one interesting one here because it marries both sides. About half the demand for silver is industrial and the balance is jewelry and sort of investment demand. So it, it straddles both lines where some days silver is going to trade where copper is going to trade and copper is going to trade based on some headline out of China. And then other days, silver is going to be where gold is and gold's going to trade off where the dollar is or where real rates are going to trade. But some of them are married together totally when it comes to the mining business, where copper and silver are basically outcrops of gold. So if you're going to develop a gold project, well, there just happens to be silver byproducts and also copper there. The undeveloped one that they own, there's a little bit of everything. So if you're going to go in there and you're going to spend all this money to explore, you're fortunate enough to be able to have access to all these different industrial slash monetary metals that have both a lot of value from those that want to own it for investment purposes, but those that are using it for industrial purposes, particularly as we said, that electrification trend. Talk about gold a little bit here because it's had nearly a 20% rally from its lows in late September. In in early November, it looked like gold was going to make a new 52-week low. And you just mentioned that the U.S. dollar index, the Dixie, come off really hard. I think it was near 115. Here we are just above 102, right? So we've had this huge move lower in the dollar. Rates have come in. The 10 years come in from four and a quarter to three and a half percent where it is right now. And on the flip side of this, now we have gold. It's banging up against levels that it hasn't traded at since last spring or so. Is it that easy? You know, you hear about correlations with gold and the U.S. dollar, and there's a lot of data. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue or whatever that's saying. It's not nearly as correlated as many think, and maybe that's just over a a period of time. But the the correlations are, are really clear here over the last few months or so. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, yeah, sometimes it is as simple as that, that it's just going to trade off the dollar. It's just going to trade off real rates. One interesting thing about gold as an asset class is it goes through periods of time of of major outperformance relative to stocks, then periods of grand underperformance, and then periods of outperformance. You look at the 70s, gold did much better than stocks from the peak in 1980 to the stock market peak in March 2000. It did terribly. And then from 2000 to today, gold is up more than the S&P 500. So essentially, there are times to own it. There are times not to own it. And I think that the reason for the outperformance beginning in 2000 was in response to that tech bubble, you know, Greenspan cut rates down to 1%. And at the time, 1% was unheard of. So all of a sudden, relative to a 1% interest rate, gold all of a sudden looked attractive. And then you throw in QE, and not just in the US, but globally. So all of a sudden, wow, gold looks really attractive. We got artificially low interest rates. We have all this central bank money printing. And then they created negative interest rates. So I think that was sort of the intellectual curiosity about owning gold in this very different monetary landscape. So that brings us to today, where that's going away. Negative interest rates is going away. And central banks are now trying to shrink their balance sheets. But the question with gold and the bull case for it is, can they pull it off or not? If they can pull this off and we can get a magical soft landing and we can have a long time regime now of positive real interest rates, then maybe gold is not such attractive as an asset class. But if you think that this is going to be a very difficult balancing act to pull off and that real interest rates are going to remain negative for a period of time, central banks are going to have a really tough time shrinking their balance sheets and eventually may have to actually resume to QE again, then gold in this kind of environment, I think, still remains attractive. And the end of this bull market is still not here. But I will say, as a money manager, I do look forward to the day when I sell my gold, because that means that other things are more normal again. The other fixed income and equities, when we can just analyze them without having to think about what's the Fed going to do, like that would be a nice investing environment is be able to pick in stocks without having to think about what is the Fed going to 
do and say and and influence my stock portfolio. Yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath for that there, uh, pal. Um, all right. So one, one thing I would say, you know, you, you just said as a money manager, you know, I'm a trader. I actually put a short bias near-term trade on in the GLD, finding my risk using options. Last week, I detailed it on our market call. And it just, I'll tell you this, for just such a low vol asset, when you look at just the range of implied volatilities on underlying ETFs out there, it, it was much cheaper than almost everything else. And it's just had a little bit of a blow off top here over the last few days. So I've been very wrong in a near-term basis, kind of re-questioning my near-term thesis. I want to broaden this out a little bit. So we just talked about that nearly 20% rally in gold off the lows from last fall here. Peter, the flip side of this is the, the Bloomberg Commodity Index is down nearly 20%. Just think about how poorly, okay, that index has acted, right, from its highs. And gold, which has done pretty well over the last few months, makes up, you know, 12%, okay? It's the, the highest contributor to the weight. And then behind that is crude and natural gas, about 15% combined, or maybe a little more. Maybe 20 some, I guess, if you're looking at light, sweet, crude, and then you're looking at nat gas, and then you're looking at Brent. So, right there, you have about 21%. Talk to me about the broader commodity setup right here, because we had Anastasia Amoroso from iCapital on the pod on Friday. And, you know, she used this expression, which, um, first of all, she's brilliant and she's, she's just a great strategist. But she mentioned that the world is short of, and then she started listing all the things. And I think I've heard you say that as it relates to commodities and some other. And I say, okay, when everybody is you know on the same page that we are short of all these things, which means that if there's ever an increase in demand, we're going to see a major bull run or at least an epic short squeeze, which is what we saw in natural gas and crude last year, right? With all the uncertainty around the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But look at how hard they've come off. And, and the charts look horrible. You know, we talk about how supposedly wrong the Fed was about transitory, right? In 2021, we'll look at almost everything that makes up this Bloomberg Commodity Index is trading very near its 52-week lows, right? And so depending upon your time frame for transitory, they were really right. I mean, there was a massive reversion to the mean here. So talk to me a little bit about commodities, how you're thinking about nat gas, how you're thinking about crude and where they're trading right now says to you about a global reflation trade in 2023. Well, the re recession fears certainly dominated commodities when you look at the back half of 2022 and that all the big picture supply worries were definitely more than offset by China's continued lockdowns, uh, worries about a European recession and what aggressive rate hikes would mean for the U.S. economy, particularly housing. U.S. housing is a big demand driver for copper. The U.S. auto sector is a big demand driver for copper and steel and aluminum and so on. So you get a slowdown in the interest rate sensitive demand heavy parts of the economy, then you assume that, that prices are going to fall. And that's exactly what happened. I think that the key for 2023 is the Chinese economy that is now opening up. And you're talking about, from a population perspective, 17% of the world's economy is now opening up for the first time in three years. These people have been locked up. So I think that the, the sell-off in commodities, particularly energy, certainly was deserved, again, because of the demand destruction that high prices caused and the global slowdown that resulted in that is reversing and that the China reopening is going to be a huge economic bright spot for the entire Asian region and also for parts of Europe that do business. A little less so than for the U.S. because we don't do as much business directly with China. You will see oil consumption out of China, which faltered terribly last year, go to a record high in 2023 in terms of barrels. They're going to consume about 16 to 17 million barrels a day in 2023. The U.S. consumes about 20 million. That is going to be, I believe, uh, a reason why oil prices at some point in the back half of this year, and I say the back half because the China reopening is not really going to kick in until Q2, Q3, and that you can see $125 a barrel or higher by Q3, Q4 of next year. Natural gas prices obviously is more related to the Russian war and the weather, but I do think that China reopening is going to lead to a much sharper demand increases. I think commodity prices after this pullback to bottom line it, is going to surprise to the upside 
in the middle part of this year. Doesn't that make the Fed's job that much harder, right? If, if the anticipation is that we're going to see a reflation in some of the prices and, and some of the major inputs for inflation, then we're going to see the Fed is going to have to stay hawkish for longer, which could obviously continue to dampen our growth here. I guess what I'm concerned about is that, you know, and I know that you had a fairly bearish thesis for most risk assets other than commodities last year, specifically precious metals. And as we come into 2023 here, we have an S&P that's already up 4%, NASDAQ's up 5%. And when you think about what happened in the stock market last year, the S&P down 20% or so, it just doesn't seem that bad, right? When you think about, you know, the S&P in 2021 was up 28%, you know? And so I guess I wonder, is it becoming consensus that the first half of this year is going to be rocky, that we're going to kind of have a shallow and short-ish recession that will be priced in and then China is going to come to the rescue in the back half of this year and we're going to end up having a rip roaring year in risk assets you know it's, it doesn't that seem a bit consensus at the moment so I agree that the belief that some have that somehow if the Fed's going to stop raising interest rates everything's going to be fine I think is is not a student of history if you look at the bear markets prior to covid bear markets didn't end until the Fed was almost done cutting interest rates. It really only began once they stopped hiking interest rates. But it, it's only going to happen when the market's correct, that they sort of get shaken out of this, okay, once the Fed headwind stops, everything's going to be fine, without understanding that this bear market is both a multiple story and is now transitioning to what will be an earnings story. And as earnings slow down, for a variety of reasons, because keep in mind, while inflation's rolling over, which is a good thing, inflation was the only thing that was driving revenue growth. So now that inflation rolls over, revenue growth is going to roll over too. And now if inflation starts to fall below the rate of wage inflation, which it is going to, that's really the squeeze in profit margins. And also the higher for longer theme to me should be more relevant to when the Fed stops raising interest rates. And getting back to potentially a reflationary situation in the back half of 2023, while the Fed may not continue to raise interest rates in the face of that, it'll just give them further reason to keep rates higher for longer. And I can't emphasize enough that after 15 years of artificially low interest rates and a very short increase in one year, that every month that passes by, somebody's loan is coming due and it's going to have to be refinanced at a much higher rate than the loan that is coming due. And therefore, there's going to be this just continued drag on economic activity for those companies and consumers that need to borrow money. And it's just going to lead to a slower rate of growth. And while there's this debate about a soft landing, a hard landing, well, what about a soft landing, but something that stays soft for a longer period of time? And that a soft landing sometimes leads to only a soft recovery. Well, do I want to pay 17 times a multiple of that? Are we really going to see $200, $220 of earnings in a very sluggish, no growth type of environment? I argue no. So we don't have this kind of rip-roaring kind of V-reversal as far as the economy is concerned here. One of the things that I find interesting, and remember the wake of the financial crisis, 2010, 2011, this obsession with what a double dip recession might look like here. And the difference now is that monetary policy was really easy. We had QE forever, right? Every time they were worried about weakening growth, they would kind of institute an, another policy and interest rates stayed that low for a very long time. I guess it goes back to 2018 when they started raising interest rates is pretty astonishing. But right now, what they keep telling us is that they're going to keep rates higher for longer. And then obviously, they're in the midst of quantitative tightening. So that to me is is really interesting to see how it plays out. You know, Danny Moses, who you've talked to on many occasions, our co-host on the podcast here, I mean, he thinks ultimately this year, growth is going to slow so much that the Fed is going to have to lower interest rates. And again, and I know Guy has said this also, when that happens, that's when you get this huge surge in commodity prices also. That can very well be the case. I think the question is, is how much economic weakness will the Fed tolerate? How high of an unemployment rate will the Fed tolerate? And I don't disagree that they could cut rates in the back half of this year, but there's a big difference between their previous rate cutting cycles where they essentially cut all the way down to the bone in a very short period of time versus the elevated inflation sort of limiting their ability to react to slower growth. And that let's just say they take the Fed funds rate to 5% with another 25 basis point hike in a few weeks, and then maybe they'll throw in another one after that, but that'll be it. 
then maybe they cut down to four, three and a half percent in the Fed funds rate. While that's rate cutting, you're still living in a higher interest rate environment, a higher interest rate regime that the U.S. economy is just not used to. We are used to one to two percent inflation and zero rates for the last 15 plus years. That's sort of the medication that we've become accustomed to. So we're just in a different world. And I just don't believe that bear markets bottom at 17 times earnings in that kind of environment. And I think that people are still very nonchalant that, oh, yeah, we're just kind of a mild recession. Everything's going to be fine. A mild recession, like I said, could lead to a period of very slow growth in the economy. And that can also lead to continued reductions in earnings, particularly if that margin story plays out further from here on the downside. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about housing. I mean, that's got a lot more to go. If you think of the excess in 2020 and 2021, which was obviously massively benefited by some pandemic stuff, some demographic shifts, some short supply, and then obviously interest rates. So if you have higher rates for longer, I mean, the damage that that could do on the housing market, the negative wealth effect associated with that, to me, it's going to be a big story for the next few years. Before we get to your interview with Rudy Frank, you had a tweet on Friday. I thought it was really interesting. I'll guarantee something today. One, I make every quarter that about 70 to 75% of companies reporting earnings will beat the EPS consensus estimate. We will likely see year-over-year declines for Q4 and muted guidance, but that is how the earnings game is played each and every quarter. I make that point frequently in a way. We talk about how estimates, you know, they kind of get inched down over the course of that quarter for the most part if analysts are a bit worried, okay? And then ultimately when you get to the report, which usually comes three to four weeks after the quarter is over, You're going to get inputs from other companies. It could be companies that they do business with. They could be peers. They could be a whole host of things, right? And ultimately, by the time you get to that company that you're most focused on, on their earnings report, at least estimates have come down a little bit. Expectations have come down a little bit. And ultimately, the knee jerk is basically to probably not take it for what it is. So talk to me a little bit about why you were emphatic. You said, I'll guarantee something today, Peter. Every earnings season, you know, we hear about 75% of the companies beat. And that's declared as a, as a good earnings season. And I argue that's just the normal earnings season. If 75% is the bar, if all of a sudden 80 to 85% of companies are exceeding, that's a good earnings season. So I just wanted to make the point of just the earnings games that companies play with the analysts. They lower the bar, they exceed the bar, but it, it's to what extent do they beat the 75? And also look at revenue numbers relative to the estimates as well and guidance too. We remember... One of the things in the late 90s into the early 2000s were companies pre-announced. You know, when the things started to unravel, there were these pre-announcements. But now, for the last couple of years, there's just like barely anybody pre-announces. And one of the reasons, I think, is if you're going to make your number for whatever reason, you're going to miss it by a penny. There's no reason to pre-announce. It's all about guidance. It's all about profit margins and exceeding the 75% hurdle. When I think about 2022, you know, there were some epic rallies off of lows. We had one March into April. We had one June into August, and we had the one in October into early December, and they all came around earnings season. You know, the markets were selling off, the stock market was selling off into earnings season, and I think a lot of what you just kind of described happened, and then investors like, well, it wasn't that bad, and they rallied hard out of it. In each instance, there were new lows that were made, the October low has not been retested yet. Um, It really feels like the NASDAQ wants to retest those October lows. It's much heavier than the S&P. I get worried about the consensus. And I started saying this before is like for people who are kind of bearish of into last year and all of last year and really haven't changed their tune much. I know that was you. I know that was Danny Guy and myself. I get worried about this consensus and I get worried about the fact the market's already up. We have yields down to three and a half percent in the 10 year from four and a quarter. We have the Dixie down more than 10%, right, from its high in Q4. We have the VIX that is just melting. The high yield index, the HYG, the ETF that that, that tracks is up nearly 10% off its lows just um, a couple months ago. Other than the VIX, there's a lot of things that people would suggest could be a tailwind for equities right now. I, I think the consensus is beginning to shift to the Fed's almost done. Inflation's rolling over. That's bullish. We have to buy. It's coming down to that, which, which is true. That is a good thing that inflation's rolling over and the Fed's almost done. But then we have to, after that excitement sort of runs its course, and maybe it already has around this 4,000 level in the S&P, maybe not. But then we have to shift from Fed's almost done, but they're staying higher for longer, and inflation's rolling over. But that actually could be negative 
for earnings. Maybe it's a relief to the consumer, but if you're a consumer products company, all of your revenue growth over the past 12 months has been through inflation. Your volumes are actually down. And like I said earlier, if wage growth now starts to exceed inflation, well, then that's what's called a margin squeeze. But for the next couple of months, the consensus could be wrong in the sense that we can have a good first half on the inflation rolling over Fed is almost done. But then the back half is difficult because earnings really roll over and we have the China inflation story and so on. Well, we'll have to save this conversation on employment. You just mentioned wage growth, and that is obviously a huge input, and it will weigh on corporate earnings over the course of this year. We just saw that unemployment print in December at at 3.5%, a pre-pandemic low here. So that's definitely making the Fed's job a bit harder. All right, listen, Peter, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for your interview and your conversation with Rudy Frank, the CEO of Seabridge Gold. So stick around for that. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Dan. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. I am Peter Bookvar, and this is another episode of the Book Report CEO Podcast. I'd like to welcome my guest, Rudy Frank, who's the CEO of Seabridge. Maybe not a name you've heard of, but Seabridge is a holder of five really exciting precious metal slash copper projects, with one of them being the biggest undeveloped gold, silver, and copper project in the entire world. Rudy, thanks for joining me today. Peter, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So Rudy, we know the mining business is extraordinarily difficult. Number one, you're relying on a price you can't control. And number two, it's really tough to get that stuff out of the ground. When you graduated college and you were thinking about what I want to do for a living, what attracted you to this business? <laughs> well, maybe in hindsight, if I knew what I know now, I might have gone in a different direction. I was born and raised in New York City in Queens. I attended Columbia University, got into the school more for the ability to swim backstroke than my grades. But I went into the engineering school and I selected mining engineering as my discipline in undergraduate. I had a professor there who was a gold bug. And I learned a lot about the gold market back in the 1970s. And as you know, Peter, that was a very exciting time to be in the gold market with gold just coming off of the shutdown of the gold wind by Nixon. I also became quite interested, not so much in the engineering side of mining, although I do hold a degree in mining engineering, or on the business and finance side. So I stayed in school, uh, did graduate degrees in mineral economics and finance, did some time actually trading physical gold on the desk of Phillip Brothers and launched my career into the mining space. And uh, that was uh, over 40 years ago. I don't think I'd really change things if I did. I, I was kidding before, but it's been a really worthwhile and rewarding 40 years in my career. What's interesting is the first 20 of them were somewhat lean in the sense of the gold bull market topped out in 1980 and really didn't get going until 2000. So to be able to build a career during that, call it 20-year bear market, which probably really positioned you well, particularly with Seabridge, when things got going again in 2000, right around the time the Bank of England decided to sell 
all of their gold. You've been through thick and thin. Absolutely correct. In the 1990s, I stepped in as CEO of a publicly traded company based in Toronto, and we built three gold mines in the span of five years in Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, and Panama. It was a time when the gold price was going down, but financing was available. You know, we built those three gold mines. Uh, two of them were being commissioned as the gold price took a precipitous drop down, trading well below $300 an ounce. We had a hurricane, Hurricane Mitch, come through and destroy our supply lines at two of these projects. And these projects were eventually expropriated by the uh, Honduran and the Nicaraguan government and taken on for their ownership. Greenstone back then lost everything. You know, I learned a lot from that experience. Uh, first and foremost, political risk is real, which is why at Seabridge we focus only on North America. I learned the hard way that there's a lot of dilution that happens in the mining space. We've always been trying to minimize dilution by keeping share count low while we grow ounce count. And last but not least, it's challenging to build a mine. I will never build another mine in my career, even though I have the background in doing it, with the view that let somebody else do the heavy lifting, the large expenditures, and give away some of the upside, but really protect the downside. Your timing was was pretty incredible to start Seabridge in 1999, but right on the cusp of the bull market we've seen since. And you know, the average person doesn't know that since the NASDAQ peak in 2000, gold has outperformed both the NASDAQ and the S&P. 500. So want to talk about the building of Seabridge to today, where you have five projects. Speaking of geographies and safe jurisdictions, you have four in Canada and one in Nevada. What was the trigger for starting Seabridge? It was a view that the price of gold would go substantially higher. I connected with an old colleague of mine and we launched Seabridge with the view that let's create a company that will provide outstanding leverage if we're right on the gold price. And we've done that through the simple concept of growing ounces in the ground faster than shares outstanding, either through acquisition when valuations are low or through drilling when uh, we see opportunities to go after. You know, our industry, to be perfectly honest, Peter, could be the worst allocators of capital of any business on the planet. You look at the amount of money that's been wasted, the share counts that go up again and again and again without offsetting that uh, accretion or that dilution with accretion and value. So at Seabridge, it was all about let's build leverage. Let's go out and buy assets when the prices are cheap. Let's buy assets that are in safe jurisdictions, and let's buy assets that we see exploration upside in. And you look at our track record over the past 25 years, yes, our share count has gone up, but we now have one of the largest reserve and resource bases in the world. Speaking to your distaste for actually taking these projects to full-scale exploration and pulling it out of the ground and selling it into the market, when you started Seabridge, was that the initial plan as well, was to just buy undeveloped projects, bring them to a certain point, and then joint venture to take it to that next level? Or did you sort of transition to that belief? That was a guiding principle from day one, which we've held true to. You know, you look at our history here, we've taken the opportunity over time when the market conditions were really strong, we were able to take assets that we bought for pennies on the dollar and sell them for tens of millions of dollars because the big companies are always willing to overpay at market tops. And that helped us keep our share count low. With KSM now, though, this is a project that we want to stay involved with in a joint venture relationship. It'll be the largest mine ever built in North America. It'll be by far the largest mine ever built in Canada. And looking at the mineral endowment we have there, this is a project that can go on for well over 100 years. And to quantify for the listener the, the KSM project, in your recent slide deck, we're talking almost 50 million ounces of gold, 160 million ounces of silver, and seven plus billion at pounds of copper. That's what defines the biggest undeveloped project out there. And that's only in our proven and probable gold reserves. If you look at the total mineral inventory at KSM, we have 150 million ounces of gold. We have over 50 billion pounds of copper. We have over 800 million ounces of silver, and we have over 1 billion pounds of molybdenum. So it's not just the reserves, it's also the metal in the ground beyond that. So mining companies define reserves that are a subset of the actual mineral inventory that they have. When you start the development of a project like this, it's not like you send your geologists and your engineers and say, hey, there's a lot of gold, silver, and copper here on the ground, but let's find a JV partner. You start the development project. You begin the infrastructure that's needed to develop a project. And you obviously need to raise capital to do that. You spend money. How far into that development do you take it before you say, you know what, time to hand the ball off to that other partner 
that's going to fully development thereafter. It's a function of which project you're looking at. Some projects you're willing to take further because you think you can drive additional value by taking it further. There's some projects where you say, hey, I'm done with this now. I'm going to spend a lot of dollars for the next dollar of value. It's not worth it. So let's sell it. In the case of KSM, we've taken it pretty far. When we took this project on, we bought it from Placer Dome in the year 2000. Placer Dome at the time, I think, was the third largest gold mining company on the planet. We were able to buy this for $200,000 after Placer Dome had spent $25 million at KSM. Uh, We started drilling at KSM in 2006. We quickly added ounces on top of what was known there. As we added ounces, we started to look at the engineering studies. How can you build a mine here? How can you design a mine? We advanced that. And then also we decided in this case to go into permitting. You know, one of the toughest challenges in today's world is getting a new mine permitted. We decided to take that on ourselves and now have a fully permitted project at KSM. The problem is, is that permits eventually expire if the project is not yet moving forward. So in the case of KSM, a couple of years ago, we said, okay, we're going to ensure that these permits don't expire. And we took on what's now known as substantially started activities. We are now going in and doing early site construction to show that the project has now started and the permits will then be good for perpetuity. So we're taking this project a lot further than any other project we've had. I think by the end of this year, we probably will have upwards of $800 million invested KSM and all the work we've done on it. But being able to show a project that today's metal prices that has a, a net present value pushing $10 billion US. So did Placer Dome just lose patience, weren't willing to make the capital allocation to develop this because they saw what this could entail cost-wise? Or did they just miss something that you guys saw instead? They missed something. Back then when they owned it, a lot of the deposits we've now found were covered with glaciers. They were not able to drill on top of the glaciers. Since we purchased this project, these glaciers have retreated by almost three kilometers exposing two new deposits that we were able to drill out. The other challenge that Placer Dome had back then was logistics. There wasn't a lot there, so you had to bring everything in by air. We now have roads, we now have ports, we now have power that was actually put in place with other people's money that Placer Dome didn't have back then. And those are important elements when you're looking to develop a project, the scale of KSM. By having this infrastructure in place and the development up to the point that you're taking it, I'm assuming that makes it easier for a joint venture partner to come in. It's like the home buyer that is more attractive to a house that doesn't need that much work versus having to go in and renovate the whole thing. You're basically saying you don't need to do much work other than just the dirty work of exploration. Everything else is done for you. 100% correct. I mean, the, the big thing that we have at KSM is the power. If you look at a lot of these other big projects around the world that are perhaps in the development uh, line, they have to build power plants, either coal, diesel, uh, gas, or some other form of energy. Typically for a project the scale of KSM, it's one to $2 billion that has to be spent on developing power. And then on top of that, your operating costs could be 15 to 25 cents per kilowatt hour. At KSM, the government has actually extended the power grid right past KSM bringing cheap hydro power to the region. We've now secured 250 megawatts of power from BC Hydro. We actually signed a facilities agreement with them last year. They're building our substation. We'll be able to buy power off the grid for about five cents per kilowatt hour, some of the cheapest power in the world. So that definitely is helpful in the context of bringing a partner in, knowing they don't need to do that work. Right, so let's just say I'm a potential partner and I come in and we come to an agreement. How much time would it take me to take it to the point where gold, silver, copper is actually coming out of the ground? We're looking actually for a two-phased earn-in from our partner. Phase one is for them to complete whatever work they deem necessary to make a construction decision, which essentially entails taking with the study we've done now to a bankable feasibility study. That probably takes upwards of two years. Then once a construction decision is made at the point of a final feasibility study, it's probably another five to six years to first production. But at that point in time then, then you have a mind that with what we already have designed today in our engineering studies, we've got more than 72 years of mine life on a project that only captures about 40% of the overall resource of the metal that's known in the ground. So w- without getting into like details of your conversations with potential partners, I'm assuming anybody in this business understands the long-term time horizon you must have in order to be successful. You're not dealing with a hit movie that is, you know, you develop in a short period of time and and it takes off. You need a long-term time horizon. Are the, the people you talk to, are they acknowledging that 
while maybe they're not going to be running the company come year 10 when it starts producing, that for the long-term viability of a lot of these mining businesses, uh, these are the type of projects that they need to invest in. Or they more short-term Wall Street oriented, focused on you know, the, the quarter's EPS. No, I think they're more long-term in thought than they have to be because the lifeline for mining companies are reserves. And the elephant in the room right now is at least in the gold space, the larger gold companies are at a, the lowest reserve level they've ever been in my 40 years in a business in terms of number of ounces. And if you look at the mine life that's left at say a Newmont or a Barrick, it's not very long. It's maybe a little bit more than 10 years uh, based on what they have today. They need new projects uh, to fill that pipeline beyond that. Because at the end of the day, valuation is based on basically a discounted cash flow of future production. And you need ounces in the ground for that future production to drive current value. The copper companies are a bit different. Copper companies, they need new projects as well because demand is growing substantially as a result of all the green energy initiatives that are being put in place. And if you look at the world today, within a year or two, we're going to have such a shortage of copper because the new mines are not getting permitted. It takes a long, long time to get a mine permitted today than even 10 years ago, earlier in my career. So KSM is one of these opportunities that we actually have permits in place and you could be producing copper here within, you know, within seven years. And is it safe to say that in this renewable electrification path that the world is going down, that copper is probably the most important raw material uh, as part of this, this theme? Uh, definitely. Just in terms of, uh, you know, distribution of electricity for electric powered vehicles through charging stations, copper is necessary. It's necessary in uh, electric powered vehicles. It's necessary in wind turbines. It's necessary in uh, solar panels. Uh, you know, the unfortunate thing, Peter, is the groups that really want green energy initiatives put in place, I get that, are unfortunately the same groups that tend to be anti-mining. You know, so you have this battle that always goes on, people opposing your project, even though it's a project that's needed for future energy supply. Right. Green is not always as green as it seems. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Yeah. And and the whole not in my backyard thing. Yes, for, of course. Now you have four other projects. Now, how are they developing in terms of advancements and infrastructure development and so on relative to KSM? The next higher advanced project we have is Courageous Lake, an asset in the Northwest Territories that we bought from Newmont and Total Energy back in 2002. We bought this pretty cheap. I think we paid $5.5 million in cash for a project that had over 5 million ounces of gold known at the time. Near the bottom too. Right near the bottom, exactly, before gold had its move. We started drilling at Courageous Lake to expand the resource. We were successful there. We more than doubled the resource from the 5 million ounces to over 10 million ounces. And then in 2012, we did a pre-feasibility study that at the time when the Canadian dollar was on par with the U.S. dollar, which is not good for Canadian assets, and the gold price was only about $1,300 back then. So even though it was a big project with lots of ounces, it wasn't very robust from an economic perspective. And at that point in time, we also were well on our way at KSM. So we shut that project down at a certain point and continued activity at KSM. We are now, for the first time since 2012, getting back to work on Courageous Lake. We are going to update the pre-feasibility study this year. We're going to show actually a smaller, more robust starter project before you get onto the bigger project. Uh, again, having that many ounces in the ground on a project that's going to be economic in the current environment in a safe jurisdiction like Canada should drive value to our shareholders. I remind some of our longstanding shareholders that before we did any work at KSM, at one point in time, Courageous Lake generated a market cap to our shareholders of about a half a billion dollars. And today I'd say it is very little in our stock because quite honestly, we've ignored it for 10 years. Right. And your, your market cap in US dollars is about 1.1 billion for perspective. And one of your projects was uh, Three Aces, which you bought in May 2020, right at the heart of the shutdown. So you found a way to really take advantage of other people's sort of distress and impatience. So that, that seems to be a healthy contrarian trait of yours. It's pretty easy in our industry, to be honest, because the big companies are always doing the deals at the absolute wrong time. You look at that period from 1999 to 2002, gold was trading well below $300 an ounce. The majors, instead of going out and buying assets, were willing to sell assets for pennies on the dollar. Example, what we did at KSM with Placer Dome. In 2015, we saw a similar drop in the gold market. Gold had gone from 1900 down to 1050 in a short period of time, and valuations got decimated. So in 2015, we said, okay, this is our market to go out and start buying. 
And sure enough, what we could look at was quite extensive. And we wound up buying three projects, Iskit in British Columbia, Snowstorm in Nevada, and the one you mentioned, three aces in the Yukon. I want to shift just a bit to the macro here because, you know, the, the value of these projects obviously vacillate with the price of the underlying commodity. And we've been in this, I like to call it this monetary fantasy land where we entered a world of negative rate policy. But even before negative rate policy, gold went from 250 in, in 1999, 2000 to $1,900 in 2011. So before we even thought about negative interest rates, gold was at $1,900. Silver went to 50 uh, in early 2012. And here we are with the expansion of central bank balance sheets in the multi-multi-trillions. We had a peak of negative yielding bonds in late 2020, early 2021 of 18 trillion. That's now back to zero. It's such an interesting time for the monetary metal of gold. And as we talked about the industrial use of copper, and I think people underappreciate the industrial use of silver. I mean, half the demand for silver is industrial and silver is going into a lot of these renewable uses. It's one of the more highly conductive metals. I've been very bullish on precious metals for years now, but I've said that for the last couple of years. Like you think, okay, this is the year. I remember in 2013, when the Fed said, we're going to QE infinity, I said, okay, this is what then takes gold to $3,000 an ounce. And here we are 10 years later, and gold's still you know, 1900 where it was in 2011. I know you focus on the macro, obviously not to the same extent you focus on the micro of your business, but what are your thoughts on, on, on the macro world we're in and what this means for metals prices? Let me put it this way. As bullish as I was when I started the company in 1999 with gold at 260, I may be more bullish today. And a lot of that is a function of what's going on in the global uh, financial system. Uh, you know, we had a period here with uh, basically zero or close to zero interest rates, at least in the United States, where global debt grew from $160 trillion at the last credit crisis to over $300 trillion today. The only reason that credit was able to expand the way it did is because interest rates were essentially at 6,000-year lows at zero. The amount of malinvestment that happened during that space with easy dollars and, and low interest rates is going to come home to roost. But the issue right now is the amount of debt that now needs to be serviced, both personally, government-wise, and, and business-wise, as interest rates go up. You look at just the U.S. Uh, Treasury itself. How are they going to fund their needs going forward if the rest of the world is no longer buying our treasuries? They stop buying it, but they still are going to run a $3 trillion deficit this year that they're going to have to fund in a world where Russia or, uh, or China or Japan or Europe is no longer buying U.S. treasuries. In fact, they're selling them. So our view is what's going to really drive gold here in the next six months is we believe the Fed is going to be forced to pivot. They will be the only savior to the U.S. Treasury to fund the uh, U.S. government. And when they do that and go back into QE and start accumulating bonds again to fund the treasury, gold is going to go to levels I think that will shock people. I'm not just in the camp of $2,000 gold or $2,500 gold. I think we're going to see gold over the next few years at $5,000 or higher. I have to agree. And just to quantify, when you look at the gold bull market in the 70s, gold went from 35 to 850 plus. So that's you know 20 plus times. If gold bottomed at 250, you know 20 times that's 5,000. So there is a a history of, bear, of bull markets that have seen those kind of returns. And you know, to your point about all the debt we've taken on, you know, one of my concerns now is you know, the toxic combination of a lot of that debt with this rise in interest rates. And the rise in interest rates was not just something that had took place over many years. It basically happened all in one year. You had 15 years of sort of pancake interest rates, and then you go vertical. So every loan that comes due each month this year next year and thereafter, it's going to have to be refinanced at a much higher rate than that loan that is maturing. And that creates a lot of dislocations, let's just call it, for those that don't have the balance sheets to handle it. And to your point about the Fed turning back on QE, they may have to be forced into that. But I also think that what we've seen with currencies just generally, all of them are flawed in some way. One currency is a cross rate against another, but gold has been sort of a currency for thousands of years. And I like to say, if when you've been around for 5,000 years, you've seen a lot. When Bitcoin was in its bull market, I understood Bitcoin because a lot of the thoughts behind its creation were very similar to being a bull on gold. It's anti-central bank. We want to create 
something of value that is finite in nature, is very difficult to recreate. So there was similar characteristics. But when I heard people telling me that Bitcoin was going to replace gold, I said, nothing that's 13 years old is going to replace something that's 5,000 years old. Maybe it complements it, but it doesn't replace it. Now, you being, again, in this industry, being a believer in gold, what have been your thoughts on Bitcoin and crypto over the last couple of years as it exploded in popularity and it's now come back to earth? I was never a big fan, Peter. You know, I've had people, really smart people that tried to explain why Bitcoin is going to go higher to me. I just didn't understand the rationale. Yes, yeah, someone may pay higher down the road for it. But, you know, as you said, gold has a 5,000, 6,000 year history of always outperforming currencies and staying ahead of inflation. Bitcoin was something new. All these other uh, cryptos came into being very quickly, competing with Bitcoin. So it wasn't just Bitcoin. It seemed like every other week, new cryptocurrencies were being launched and going to valuations very high. But the interesting thing, even at the top in Bitcoin, the size of the Bitcoin market was only about a trillion dollars. Whereas if you look at the gold market today, at today's gold price, it's over $10 trillion. You know, I, I think at the margins, there's no question. It took away some of the shine from gold when more of the money might have gone into gold. But I think of what you're looking now in the crypto market and people realizing, hey, it's not a one-way street going up. I, I think gold will come back into focus as really the only way you can go for wealth protection in the long term. It's proven itself to be that way, particularly with the action over the past year. And I, and I got this question every day, and I'm sure you did as well. We have high inflation. How come gold is not protecting me in this inflationary environment? How come gold is not an inflation hedge? But last year, you had a very sharp rally in the dollar up until November, December, and you had the most aggressive rise in interest rates in 40 years, and gold finished the year unchanged. It absorbed a lot of punches, so to speak, now that you get a relief on the dollar rally and relief in the sense of the Fed probably being done uh, raising interest rates after one meeting or maybe two more. You've basically taken away the bear case for the metals. One last question as, as we wrap this up, because I want to tie this in. You talked about how the gold mining companies have been so good at buying high and selling low, just like the retail investor. Does that mean that they're going to approach Seabridge and your projects in the same way? Is that when gold finally gets to 2,500 to 3,000, then they're going to say, Rudy, okay, now we got to make a deal? Or are they going to be smart enough to know where things are going and try to take advantage of the attractiveness of your company now? Well, Peter, from, from your lips to God's ear, I hope they do make the same mistakes they made in the past. Yes. That just more value to our shareholders. I think that the industry had, had a good lesson taught to them over the past decade. Maybe they shouldn't be doing deals. Maybe they need to be more focused in terms of capital efficiency. And that's one of the great things about KSM. It is one of the most efficient projects out there from capital viewpoint. I mean, this is a mine with a $6 billion plus upfront investment, you're going to build a mine that over the first 10 years of mine life is going to generate over $2 billion of cash flow a year. And with a mine life that goes beyond 70 years, you know, you look at the net present values, the internal rates of return, it's, it's quite phenomenal. So I am expecting to get a deal done this year. That's my goal. That's my objective. What I can tell you now, because of the market environment with the big companies recognizing they need new projects. I have never seen as much activity as we're now seeing. So hopefully that leads to a transaction that we can say yes to. Pretty exciting story, a fascinating industry. And uh, Rudy, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time out to chat with me. Peter, it's totally my pleasure. And uh, anytime you want me on your show, just holler. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.